Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. All right, fellas, going live. Tell me when you oh, get the sign. Shouldn't have said that right. It was oh, that's okay. <laughs> yep, streaming live. Hey, now. It's uh, Tuesday. It's 10.30 a.m., 10.33 on the West Coast, 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast. It's like 6.30 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. I got no idea. How you doing, fellas? I'm okay. We've got uh, Mike Mitchell and Bill Brewster. I haven't seen Bill. It's been a while since you made your move to, uh, to Chicago. I, I haven't seen that beautiful face. Look at that guy. Living the dream. I'm very Here's happy. Fraternity. I'm very happy right now. I need to learn the official rules of beer dye. Uh, there's a lot of playing in my backyard or my neighbor's backyard. Uh, and then the girls behind us refuse to clean up their bottles, but, um, you know, it's a nice change from family life <laughs> back in the front house. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. My wife and I were both saying like, this is fun for a month. I wouldn't want it to be permanent, but, uh, to be able to see youth all over the place is a good time. Yeah, just a so, reminder, like you, 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 as much as you miss it, you just go and do it for a short period of time and right. then you just go, go back to your normal life. And it's, like that, uh, it's like that Toby Keith song, I, I, I'm, I ain't as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was. You know, it's, it's, my, uh, it's my idea. I'll go back to a fraternity house for a month. That's about all. I have yet to stop time. by. Dude, we actually, I, I would do that and make the drive up to, uh, to Itasca. That'd be a lot of fun. Let's, let's do that before you leave. Yeah, you should come here and we should play drinking games, the frat kids. That sounds like a great plan for an investment podcast to start with. That's right. Then we're going to try to get this thing. We're going to try to get curate to turn into a meme stock. A meme stock. Yes, that's that. Hey, if Wendy's can be a meme stock, Curtea can be a meme stock. We're going to plant it on college campuses. (laughs) We got to figure out the pitch. You, you got to just get a plane to fly overhead with the uh, by curate. The problem that you got is there's too many too many symbols in it, so no one's going to be able to remember. That's the problem. It really they really need to drop. It just needs to go back to QVC or QVCA. That would make it so. There much you easier. go. That would do it. Uh, a kind of an ironic one. We should get David Venables to actually make tendies on one of his cooking shows. Oh shit! I'm going to pitch Shane on that uh, next week when yeah. we see her in New York. This, no, this makes uh, a lot this, of sense. This market has gone back to being just insanely bubbly again. How is it that it just keeps on doing this? Have you ever seen anything like this before? It's just sort of, it, it won't die. I had uh, a lot of time to think about these questions when I drove in the car, Toby. And uh, since people love the inning updates, I think- yeah, what inning are we in? I don't know. I think it's, it's definitely the starters starting to get tired. The reliever is warming up. And and the starter isn't getting tired because he got shelled. Like he he's pitched a pretty good game. I think we're like fifth or sixth inning. The, the funny There's thing a is, a lot like, of weird shit huh? going on. We talked about this on last week when we had a chat offline. But the I, I'm 
kind of amazed at, um, you know, when I w- where we are now. I know that we've been talking about what inning we're in for a while. And originally, I said this is already pretty, this is pretty nutty where it was. And then you said, no, 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 this is early innings, and I couldn't imagine how insane it could get. Don't you think we're now at that? Like it's completely jumped the shark at this point, hasn't? It? Like what what no. could possibly happen that would be more silly than what we're seeing now? You got Apple at five trillion, man. That's my top. I don't know, guys. Without I, I, without underlying earnings growth, I should caveat that. I got to tell you, I, I, I number one, I don't know. I'm the dumbest guy in the room on this, but I, I got to tell you, I, I can't see like what would stop it. That that's what we were talking about. Before. Like, what's going to stop it? I, and and I'm I'm open to any ideas, but I, I I I can't. There's nothing I see. I mean, it will stop, and and the higher it goes, the bigger the crash. But it, but like, what's out there? I mean, to me, what has like, stopped it in the past? Like, what has been the triggering event in the past? Like, it's I don't think you actually ever get a, a catalyst. I think like in hindsight, you look back and you say, oh, it was X. But in, in the moment, it, like it's there's no catalyst that's any different from anything else that could possibly pop it. That's that happened in so in the night in the nineties when it when the, the the bull market actually. In, in tech really did or in, in internet stocks, which the, the old meme stocks that, that they actually, people didn't know they, they were, they were toast until six months after they were toast. Yeah. It, there was a good post. I forget who made it. I bookmarked it. I'll, I'll put it back up on my uh, Twitter machine feed. But somebody put up a big post that actually was, was like, went through all the steps and read all the old research from Bernstein and was like really yeah. trying to diagnose what happened and what killed it. And that was a good answers, Yeah, it was great. I mean, the answer is you never know, of course, but, um, there's all, it's always like a confluence of things. And of course, we're going to know the answer in hindsight, but I'm looking out and like, you look at the world. I mean, it just, it's, it's to me, it looks like a boom. You know, I, I, I could be you know, famous last words, but it looks like a boom. I'm not throwing a lot of capital behind that, but it looks like a boom. It just does. I don't know what's going to kill it. Interest rates maybe. Yeah. I mean, the thing, the thing is like, there's a good article that, uh, Elliot Turner, I'll see if he'll send it so we can pop it in the show notes. But it's like as housing goes, goes the economy or something like that. And like, mm-hmm. I mean, housing's got a lot of multiplier effects and a fair amount of pent up demand. And then there's like a lot of uh, I mean, there's a lot of 5G infrastructure spending going on. Um, I don't know. What, I, what, I, what is 5G be, infrastructure spending? Are they just changing the little changing the machine on the pole? No, I mean, they got to build out a lot of these networks and then they're going to have to like densify the networks and you've got edge computing going on. Like there's there's actual buildings and stuff being data centers being, you know, erected and whatnot. That's all jobs. I don't know how big. I mean, it's not it's a huge percentage. A while, of the, yeah, but it's going to continue to go on for a while. Yeah. I'm just saying you get like that and you get housing and you get like. I do think that there's a, a real possibility that the economy zooms and the stock market stagnates a little bit. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, Ali Wolf, uh, the housing economist, was saying, I think on the on the Odd Lots podcast, that we need something like 400,000 more construction jobs, and we're picking up like 40,000 or something. And we need 400,000 to deliver the kind of houses that we need in this country. And it's dude, there are there. labor problems everywhere. everywhere. Yep. Like my boy that's run shout out to Carson's. If you're in Chicago, go eat at Carson's. They've had a rough year. Help him out. Um, he's he's back there. He's uh, like making salads because they can't get waiters right yeah. now. He's right. run that place for like 20 years and he's made, he's in the salad line. Yeah. What's everybody doing? Trading crypto. Bro. The, yeah. They, they all they're got all that in Miami stimmy. last week. They're all in Miami last week at the crypto conference. 
I mean, I do think that's real. Like Marcelo P. Lima, he was like, Uber is broken. What's it going to take to fix it? And I was like, drivers. There's no drivers. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. It's it's uh, it's funky. It's interesting times, man. It's it's you know, it's a lot of similarities to things that have happened in the past and, and an awful lot of differences. And, you know, again, just don't know what's going to stop it. I'm a pump my own book here. People should listen to Colony. Uh, shout out to anyone that helps me understand what I own, because it's gotten a lot bigger than I like it without mm-hmm. knowing it real well. Um, but no the problem. nice thing about that, the nice thing about that company is they do a lot of um, outreach some might argue that's not exactly the best thing to be at every conference, but uh, Gansey at the Wells Fargo conference was, was interesting the other day. And he was talking about like, not that assets, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say that he said that they were priced to perfection, but I mean, you've got like tower assets trading at like pretty tight spreads. And I think he said that he thinks that they're like low single digits, you know, and you take an execution risk for that. It can work. You just got to hope that rates don't move. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the, yeah, that's the thesis for everything, isn't it? Whenever I put together, I just look at all the little valuations that I've got. If I stick in, you know, what's like, what's a reasonable rate assumption? Like 6% is insane, right? Like I'm not going to stick 6% in my, in my, in my valuation. But if I start getting to five, like there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense to five. Three, man. Three is where I'd stress stuff too. By by five, stuff's just blown apart. I mean, apart. We're, we're like, what are we at now? One point seven something. I haven't actually looked for a little bit, but like, it's bumping around one point five, one point six, one point seven. I think one point five and change is the last I saw. But yeah, right around there. So you know, one point nine, I guess, for the risk assets, right? On a thirty basis point spread, high yields, something like that, off the tenure. Thirty bips. Yeah. So that's it's funny <laughs> when I I look at the the CNN's fear and greed indicator. I look at it. I just find it kind of fascinating, and I because the little components, they track all of the underlying parts. And one of the things they look at is uh, the junk spread to investment grade. And that's been really tight and ex- in extreme greed for a long time. And it looks at um, the put call ratio. And that's just been, in, it's been in, since I've been looking at it, I've only been kind of using this thing for like, not using it, just like checking in on it every six months or a year or something like that. It's constantly in extreme greed. I almost think that the, so um, I'm just like going through this in my mind, like, w- like what's going to kill it? What's going to kill it? What's going to kill it? And so one of the, if, if you, um, if you've read the great crash by Galbraith, so I forget it was written in the early fifties, it's a great book. So he, he talked a lot about how there was this belief in the twenties. So when um, JP Morgan uh, forced the banks to sort of bail out the economy in the United States, I think it was in the in like 1906 or something on the Twitter machine and correct exact my dates, but there was a belief out there that when, the roaring twenties happened that the banks would not allow the market to crash. That was a, that was, just, that was in the psyche of, so that everybody was buying crazy real estate in Florida. That was one of the, one of the many Florida real estate firms that happened in this country. They were also buying stocks and invest. And the belief was, at least as Galbraith tells it, that most people thought that the, the market would not go down because the banks would step in and bail it out. And I, I kind of wonder if what you're really looking for is like, forget everything else. The second there's a massive drawdown and the fed doesn't step in with cash. Like that's when you just like, get out of the way like in in my mind there's this belief that if if the if the world if liquidity really dries up you've got to put and that put's been there since 08 right so it happened a couple of times you've all you've had a put from the eu got a put from the united states if they step in and say that's it we're just going to let the market kind of shake out we're not there's qe's over see oh yeah you got to sell everything you know that's like that's what would kill it and that's that's what killed the 20s is the banks banks were like 
we're not backing up your froth. Like this is froth. We're not doing it. And, it, and there was no floor. I mean, that's, that's when the panic started. Everybody thought that there was, it was impossible to lose money. And it kind of feels like that's the, that's where we are right now. It's like, I can't lose money because if liquidity dries up, the Fed will start buying ETFs. You know, they did. Which they have done. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, you know, so you're kind of waiting on them to say like, we're not doing that anymore. And, and you really, nobody's going to believe it until the stress happens and then they don't show up. Do you, do you think that there's fun. any chance that they don't show up though, like being realistic? I mean, I, I, I mean, I guess the answer to that is no. So I'm going to go, hold on. I got to buy some AMC calls here. I'm <laughs> kidding. Don't buy AMC. I'm going okay, to buy them. I don't care. Isn't it like, it's politically kind of impossible at this point to like, to not backstop at all. Like they, they well, talk about, uh, you know, winding back mortgage backed security purchases talked about, they're selling something. I saw that they're selling some, some of their corporate bond holdings. I wasn't sure they actually ever executed on that. So I just, hmm. I, I just saw it in passing that they were going to try and get out of that. Well, maybe the answer is they, they just keep doing this. And then, and, and on the other side, they just come with a tax reform to basically strip away the gains from the wealthiest individuals. I mean, that, that may be how they solve it is say, yeah, we're going to, Go in and bail people out and write people checks. Can't tax Bitcoin, bro. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's, where all the, that's where all the money is. Tax the Doge. You got to tax the uh, cryptos. I, I still don't even know how all that works. I'm sure they're going to figure out a way to tax it. Yeah, I do, I do that's think that's the most likely outcome given the path we're on. I mean, the thing that's that's like wild is I, I played with a guy. I played golf yesterday with a guy that's at a big private equity shop. Um, I talked to another guy who's a fundraiser at a, at a big one. Like I'm talking one of the big four or three or whatever. And like, both of them said, like, there's just so much fucking money flowing in. Like it, like the one guy that's a fundraiser said, there's so much coming in that like, I'm concerned. (laughs) There you go. You're having your moment. Keep going. Your your TV moment. Um, you know, that like, he's like, I'm kind of concerned that the deal teams aren't even going to be able to put it out. Hey, there we go. Mike's got his newest analyst. Yeah, <laughs> that analyst might have better answers what? than we do, but it's just kind of interesting. I mean, like with that much capital chasing deals, um, I guess you have counterparty risk on the, on the committed capital portion of it. Right. If, if they call the capital and it's just not there. That's a risk, but like, I just, man, there's just so much money out there chasing so few good deals that I just don't. Don't you feel it's been the case for an extent? Like that's been the case for five years, right? And I kind of thought that that would result in a lot of buyouts over the last five years. And that sort of hasn't happened. Well, I mean, I think that what we're learning is this stuff can go on a lot longer than five years. But I, I just, I just mean in the sense that it's, there's been a cycle of, you know, plenty of dry powder. And uh, yeah, I mean, look, this guy's words to me yesterday was fun two can just sell the fund seven and then fund seven can sell yeah. the fund 17 down the road. Now, eventually do, do it's going to have that. to stop. Right. But like, I don't know how many of these guys actually like and I'm not I'm not trying to say it's some systemic issue or make it bigger than it is. But like, I do think that a lot of the guys that are making a lot of money now are going to have enough to be retired in 10 years if they just keep the game going. So like, what's the incentive to stop it? But doesn't that feel like that's what they're trying to do? Like they're, they're like, they've got to get the boomers off. Um, we're going to let them go out on a high and then tank it for uh, whoever comes underneath it. 
I don't know about tanking it, but yeah, I mean, that's what I think us as a society is. Or, or I think that that's one possible outcome of what we're doing. I mean, it's very possible that a lot of return is just being pulled forward. I would go farther and say it's likely that a lot of returns being pulled forward. I wouldn't even use the word possible. Yeah. Except for curate. Except for curate. Curate's cheap, man. That's right. Meme they're it. always they're, they're always little pockets of of undervaluation. You just got to be prepared to do something that doesn't feel very good at the time you do. You got to own home shopping or lumber or energy or something. You know, just pretty distasteful at the time that you go into why, it. Why are you coming after my book, Toby? Why are we guys <laughs> talking about my book? Well, so that goes. In, yeah, well, that goes to another another point, though. You've got to be willing to swing, right? Um, so, Mike, what do you think? Like, why do you think that you're so willing to take big swings? Because that's uh, that's like very personality driven. Was that learned or do you think you're born with that? No, it, it's a it's an for me, it's an evolution. I mean, it, it could. It, and by the way, it, it, I'm not even sure that it's the right answer. It's just kind of where I've naturally gravitated to. I've, I've and it, I can't tell if it's intelligence or laziness or a combination of both. I, I really don't know it for me. When I find something great, I sort of just get it's all consuming. So now I'm like. If anybody wants to talk to me about lumber, that's like the only, there's two things floating in my head right now. It's like lumber and rights offerings. And that's it. And if anybody wants to have a conversation about those two things, I don't even care who you are. I will, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm at the, at, at the grocery store with the mask on, you know, and ladies like, you know, you go to this checkout and I'm like, really, because it's interesting. There's this debate about Southern yellow pine and if it can be used for framing materials and a lot of people say it can, but then there's other people that builders so far are saying no. And she's like, no, no, no. It's like checkout is right over there. So it, it, for me, I just sort of, my brain gets focused on one thing and it will not let it go. And it wants every piece of information on that. And so as I, uh, as I developed as an analyst and an investor, it's, it, it's almost like when I found something like uh, I go back to charter, cause that was an example of things that worked, which by the way, I, I'd like to spend some time if it's okay with you guys talking about L's cause there's a lot of discussion about W's and I'd rather go to, there's a big L I'd like to talk about, but so you go back to charter and it's like my, the only thing I was interested in is high speed data growth and uh, household formation and how that affected, you know, high speed data passings and, the pricing power of high-speed data. And at the time, uh, Chairman Wheeler at the FCC and his regulation, net neutrality. And it was like, that was my entire life for about two years. And I just figured I had a view. It was a strong view. I figured if I was wrong, I probably wasn't going to lose that much money. And if I was right, I could get rich. And so I just was like, what if I'm not? just push all the chips on the table. Just do it. Like, just push all the chips on the table. The risk is that when you do something like that, you have to be right. You know, and, 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 and that, that's one like caution flag. I think people understand, but when you, you have two choices, either your margin of safety has to be massive, or if you're going, you know, swinging big on something like lumber, like you really need to be right. Um, and you know, it's, I, I feel like I've got a good margin of safety on my investment, but really it's like when you're swinging big on something like that, like you say this really well, Bill, you're like, look, at the end of the day, it's a better on a commodity and like, who knows, you know, and I have a strong view and I think I, my downside's protected, but who knows? And, just the way my brain works. So it's an extended answer that I just feel much more comfortable having all my eggs in one basket. I don't know why that's the case. I also don't mind losing money. That's the other thing. It doesn't really bother me to lose money. Like this um, investment I had that worked out huge. If it goes back, like I know people are going to be really annoyed, but I don't care. It just doesn't like, you know, I'm, I haven't sold a share. I'll see what I do with these rights. I'm probably going to have to sell some, but you know, for the most part, I'm like, dude, if, if it goes back to 
health. It was, it was at 45 cents six months ago or nine months ago. If it goes back there, it's like, well, that was a fun ride. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, nothing in my life changed when it went to five, six bucks. You know, nothing's going to change when it goes back to 45 cents. So, I but you think about this, you, you want, you want like basically no downside or basically you, 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 you know that you can get back out where it is and you don't mind spending, you know, whatever it is, a few points around it, whatever that works out to be, because you don't know exactly where the bottom is, but, or, or whether, you know, you can burn some money doing research and burn some money just trading around, but you're just trying to find something where it's so asymmetric that you don't know necessarily yeah. how big the upside is, but it's materially like a multiple of where you are and your downside's roughly where it is. That's a hundred percent. So, so I frame this, um, I frame this, the bet on GFP that I have, I frame it similarly to how I framed Curtea. So, the reason you get big in Curtea, the reason I did, is because I truly believe the vast majority of our capital is coming back to us really, really fast. And I actually thought it would end up being more than what they initially announced that they distributed. And, and you know, Bill and I were right on that, luckily. And I, I don't even think they're done. Like, I, I think that, you know, we've got another announcement coming. I don't know whether it's 2Q or 3Q. They're going to do another capital action this year. Share repurchase. They're going to do something. I don't know what it is. But I don't know when they'll talk about it. But I think our money's coming back. So that was an easy bet for me to make. Now, as Bill rightly pointed out, as it's worked, I've sold down shares. I still have a meaningful position, but as it goes higher, that multiple's expanded, which means it's just taking longer at the current price to get all your bait back, essentially. So what do I do? I just sort of de-risk it. For GFP at the current price, it's this. It, in my view, it's something very similar. If, if I'm right about the housing cycle and then that impact on what the lumber price is going to be, I think there's a very reasonable shot that I'd get all my money back between now and the end of 2023. If that's the case, then I don't really care. You know, it doesn't really, it doesn't matter to me. Now, if I'm wrong about the commodity, if I'm wrong about the business, if I'm wrong about the operators, then, you know, yes, it's going to be a, a nightmare and that sucks. It's going to be a big L. But if I'm right about them and I'm right about the commodity, then you know, the thing will, it'll, it'll pay me back in a couple of years and then we'll get a look on the next 10. And if it sucks, who cares? Like, I got my money back, you know, it doesn't matter. That's, that's the mentality, Toby. It's like, I like things that are giving me my money back fast. Liquidations, cheap stocks. As long as my money's coming back, I don't care. And this is PA, but if you were, sorry, Bill, yeah. No, yeah, I was just going to say, like, when, you, when you're saying things like, I want to get my money back, are you saying, like, that you believe that you will actually get your money back? Or are you saying, like, theoretically as a minority interest holder? Because I think sometimes there's a big difference between people say, like, oh, totally. Well, you know, the shareholder, like, to me, a minority interest is only it only goes as far as the people that you're betting with so just kind of curious how you think no, that. that's that actually is the most critical so as i look back to uh the l's and i compare them to the w's there's one pretty consistent theme of the l's is that i didn't really have a good handle on who i was betting on i had a i had a, i think an okay handle on the, the bet but not the people running the bet so in this case and frankly, every case of every stock I've ever bought, every investment I've ever made so far, it has not been a control investment. I've been a minority shareholder. So the question isn't, it, 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 a lot of the time was spent, well, what am I underwriting and understanding what I'm underwriting, but I never spent enough time. We talked about this at Zale, and this is certainly the case with the other investment I made. It was a total L. I think it was my only total L I've ever taken. I didn't underwrite the people at all, like zero. I, I counted on other people to underwrite that. To, I counted on other people to do that work for me. It was a huge mistake. I should have done that myself. Not that I would have come to a different conclusion, but at least now I could sit here and say, well, I was wrong. I looked at that person. I judged that person what they were going to do. That's a very long-winded way of saying 
the answer is you're a minority shareholder. I don't know if they'll give the money back. I mean, it would be, of course, it'd be wonderful if they give the money back, but the key isn't whether they give the money back to me or not. The key is that they do something smart with it. So if they're going to reinvest the dollar, that it's going to end up being worth more than a dollar after they're done reinvesting it. If they're not going to reinvest the dollar, that they're just going to pay down debt, which I look at that as an accrual to me. So what they've said is they're borrowing 120 million US. The first thing they're going to do is pay down debt. That's like 80 cents a share in value that'll come back on a stock that uh, going into this transaction, I think it was 250, something like that. So that, that I know 80 cents in value is coming back to me as an equity holder. After that, I'm not really sure. I don't know if they'll uh, go out and buy another mill. I don't know if they'll pay out a dividend or distribution. I know what my vote will be in the absence of new deals. But the key is, is that I don't think they're going to waste the money. And I can't say that about a lot of businesses, frankly. In fact, most businesses in this in the uh, lumber space and really consumer pick one, I, I don't have a lot of confidence that the people are going to go out and invest in something that I understand and I know is going to make me money. With the guys that I bet with, though, I, I, it's critical to me that I feel like they're going to do a good job. And if they, what are you they looking for? My money. In people? Yeah. So the number one thing is uh, honesty. And I, I really like uh, transparency. So if somebody's, I don't care about the wins and the losses. Like it doesn't make a difference to me. But if you tell me how you came to the conclusion. So it's, it's what I'm looking for is, Bill, the, the conversation you and I had about Zale. So I walked you through like, here's what I saw. Here's why I made the investment. Here are the mistakes I made here's what ended up happening, right? And I, I, I like doing it in that order because it, it's not about, it's not always about what happens and what happens is what we all end up talking about, but it's not that. It's like, did you have a rational thought process as to why you invested in this? Did you invest in, did you see something and make an investment that you believed in? And is it something that I can understand when you went through that? And so when I talk to people, what I want to know is I, I really just want to understand what your thesis is going into all these different deals. And is it something that I can underwrite? And if it goes well or it doesn't go well, I just want you to tell me, that's, that's kind of it. The key for me is I, I really have to just trust you. And, and I don't want it's I don't want to spend my day thinking about what's going on in Kenora or in Six Mills in Ontario or what's going on at a, a movie screen business or what's going on in QVC on television. I, I don't want to spend my day doing that. So what, what I have to do is find somebody where I know they're doing their best. We're all taking a lot of risk. It just is what it is. But, but if they're doing their best and they're being open and honest with me, when Mike George told me, the CEO of QVC told me uh, in 2019, when he, I mean, it wasn't me personally, it was on the conference call. I've known Mike long enough and I know him well enough to know he was being incredibly honest. And once he told me, it's kind of like the impression I got was we don't necessarily know exactly what's going on here, but we're working on it. It's like, okay, it looks like my thesis is blown up. I appreciate that. Win or lose, I just want you to tell me what's going on so that I can make my own choices. The biggest L I had, I invested in a private investment in a lumber mill in White City, Oregon. It was the opposite of that. It all looked great on paper. The guy who ran it, um, basically, be kind here. He basically lied. I'm pretty sure he stole money too. Like Bill started stacking up. He didn't pay him. Uh, engineers had come in and said, "Well, we restart the mill. That we can you know, restart it at this certain capacity level. We'll, we put six million dollars into fixing the mill up, and when we turned it on, it was running at like 35% of what we thought. And it come to find out, the guy had basically like." He got, it's really tragic. He got sick and got cancer. And he basically was like, this is my last chance. I'm going to say anything I need to say to get capital to turn this on. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, it's like fire festival, but in White City, Oregon with lumber, you know? And I'm not saying that if I would have met him, I would have said, oh, this guy's a liar. I might've liked him and given him my money, but at least in that scenario, I could have felt like the mistake I made was not making that call myself, not actually meeting the guy. The two guys who found him, who underwrote the deal, 
Um, you know, I, I didn't even vet them. I vetted, it was through one of a good friend of mine said he liked them, had done a deal with them. It hadn't really worked, but they found this deal and this deal looked interesting. I should have done that diligence myself. It was a mistake. And I'd like to think that I'm a good enough judge of character where if I met the guy, I might've been able to say like, this guy's, it's not even his incentives. I don't really care about the incentives. It's, it's when I meet you, can I trust you? It's like, I met Bill and in about 20 minutes of talking to Bill Brewster, like I would give Bill my money. I don't even care what you do with it. Like just do your best. Do yeah. He's like, it's a mistake. Yeah, it's a mistake. But like, I, you know, it, the guy's open, the guy's honest, you know, wears his heart on his sleeve. It's like something I can, I can get behind. He's a good person. And I'd say the biggest, the biggest thing, the most important thing to me, and this is going to sound, I think this might sound shallow, but please don't take it as shallow. It's actually, to me, it's very meaningful. Is he your army? He's good looking. <laughs> Is he good looking? That's what I want. No, it, so uh, I can tell you for sure, uh, John Malone loved it that he made me a lot of money in charter. It made him very happy. Courtney Chun, uh, who's the head of portfolio there at Liberty, she, I, I wrote her this letter in um, uh, 26, uh, 2017 or maybe early 2018 that was like, you have no idea how much I appreciate you and, and the amount of wealth that you created for my family. And it was not more complicated than I just listened to them. I didn't like, I didn't decide cable was great on my own. They were like, this is what we're doing. We think this makes a lot of sense. You should do it too. And I was like, that sounds easy. And you guys sound great. It made Courtney incredibly happy that she made my family so much money. And it, that is the one thing I, the guy in white city, Oregon could have cared less that he cost my family a hundred thousand dollars. He's like, you're some rich a-hole from, you know, Westchester County, New York. I don't care. And if this works, you make money. I don't care. Well, John cared. I mean, if you, you see it in his book, but I'm just telling you, like spending that time with the guy, he cared. He really wanted my family to do well. And it's the same with the other partners I have in the lumber project. It, it gives them no end of happiness that we're all doing well together. And I know it's the same with Brewster. Like Brewster loves seeing it work and seeing it go well. And I know he takes it personally when it doesn't. I kind of feel like that's like the best thing you could hope for in a partner. That's just my, my two cents. Or I you can keep saying time. nice things about me. <laughs> <laughs> it's really all I have. After that, it's all downhill. So that's, that's my best stuff. But the nice. people matter. Thank man. you. I'll send you the check later. Yeah, exactly. I, I say this all the time. The, the people, people do not spend enough time. Analysts do not spend enough time underwriting the people. I mean, anymore. That's pretty much all I do. And then it, once I feel like I trust them and, I, and they know what they're doing. I, I just want to get out of the way. Like I'll just read a book. So who else out there who is like a Malone? Uh, maybe Malone is like the 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 pinnacle of that group. But who else out there is in that group who is um, you know trying to make money for you or with you rather than trying to make it off you? Nick Howley, the G. Yeah, Howley's Howley's a, he's doing a good job. Uh, Was Foley. he? Trans Dime. Yeah. I mean, those dudes at Heiko, the Mendelssohn's, right? Yeah. I think some of the, I think where um, you can find a lot of aligned incentives are, are in like businesses that are at the growthier end of their inflection. I think where you start to get like a lot of agency costs is, you know, guys have nice salaries, growth starts to slow. They got to figure out how to keep the stock up. That's like, that's when I think stuff gets kind of gray. Yeah. I don't, I, this might surprise you. I don't spend a lot of time actually reading through incentive structures. It doesn't like it. I, I used to, and I used to like pour over proxies and like, well, who's like, where do your options strike? And are you selling and do you like, and what sort of comp do you get? And I think it was 26. When did the uh, time Warner cable charter deal 
uh, get announced. Do you guys, when it was like about to close and Rutledge got his new oh, I just talked about this with Francisco. I think it's like 2016 or 2015, okay, 2016. wasn't it? So, so 2016 comes and Greg Maffei is out like touting Tom Rutledge's uh, compensation agreement that he you know, helped write that agreement. And sure enough, if you looked at it, it was this wild options package, tons of options, but they all, they, they laddered and they all struck at prices. I think the stock was like 200 or even under 200. They all struck at, uh, at prices up to like 560. And so, so Greg was like, you know, oh, this is so, look at this. He's got to get the stock up to do really well. And I, and I want to say this, I, I think this is close. I, I haven't done this math in a while, but I want to say it would make Tom like effectively a billionaire if, he, if he's like, it was an insane amount of comp, right? And so I, so I asked John, I was like, you know, it's a lot of money, but it, you're right, it's higher prices. And John's like, you're overthinking this. What you want to do with managers is you want to give them way out of the money options and if they hit it, make them rich. And he's like, trust me, they'll hit it. If they're any good, they'll hit it. And I was like, John, that is, that is absolutely true. Like, that, that just made, he's like, no, you, you're overthinking this comp stuff. Just give them way out of the money options. And if they hit a home run, make them rich, who cares? You know, he's not wrong. Like I see people bitch and moan about comp packages. And I'm like, dude, if the guy triples your money, who gives a flying F if he makes, you make 5 million and he makes 500 million. Who cares? You just made five million. Like, what is it? Such a big. And I know people like I'm sure are going to shit on me on Twitter and YouTube for saying this, but at the end of the day, he's not wrong. If the guy makes you a ton of money, who cares what the fee is? Like, who cares that Greg Maffei made 150 million dollars? Greg Maffei made me a ton of money and carried. I'm happy he got paid. It's the same with Mike George. I want those guys to get rich. By the way, we get rich together. It's like that's part of them being excited that we all did well. This is a slight segue, but did you see, you know, the, the pay packages for the Logan Paul Mayweather fight? Did you, did you guys see what they were? No, I didn't see. What were they? So Mayweather gets a hundred million for doing it. And Logan Paul got something like 12 or 18. I've seen, I've seen two different numbers, but I think he basically puts it together, right? He port the port, like there's no reason for Mayweather to go and fight these guys. He says he's retired, but that, I just, I just thought about it in that context. Like why yeah. would Paul give away five times? Cause he, cause he can make $20 million. Yeah. It's like, who cares? I mean, you know, it's, that's my, that is my point with management. Like people look at the incentives and say, well, this is like crazy. And he's going to, the truth is like, if you're, if you're adding the value, dude, and, and you're making me money, like take your fee, man. Like I, two and 20 doesn't bother me. Three and 30 doesn't bother me. If you're worth it, charge away, dude. I have no, no complaints on my end. I'm, no, I'm, I'm happy to pay the fee. I, on this lumber deal, I'm going to pay two guys from one guy was a uh, number two of Fairfax and another guy was uh, found some lumber. Company. The fee that they're getting, if you look at it in terms of the best investment that they made and the warrants, they, the fee they're getting is obscene. And I also could give 20 shits how big it is. I wish it was three times as big as it was. Like this was a home run. Thank you guys. Like I, I don't, you know, to me, that just doesn't, doesn't resonate. I think the tough thing happens, man, when you like, get into the i'm gonna take a shot at zaslav i'm sorry for the discovery shareholders but you know like that dude has made like i just saw his pay drop to 30 million dollars right and like yeah he put together this deal but you know over a five-year stock chart now i am not doing per share intrinsic value so forgive me people i'm i'm doing this on the fly but like that stock hasn't moved in five years right that's up 16 percent, and he's getting I don't know, somewhere, somewhere around 150 million to 200 million during that time. It's, I think, I think that the art of it comes from being like, like the scenario like that, it's easy to say, well, Malone owns it and he believes in Zaslav and he thinks Zaslav's worth it. I'd be really interested behind the onion or behind the curtain in Berkshire. I think some of those managers make a lot more money than people think they do. 
100% correct. I, I, I would love to see the actual like total cost of Warren being Warren. My understanding is that there's like Warren's secretary, he's like knows exactly when he wants a cherry Coke and like job will be <laughs> travels with him everywhere, travels with him everywhere and delivers like cherry Cokes. Now, I don't know what all, I'm sure he has an entourage. And stuff. I don't know what that costs per year. I can tell you for sure, whatever it costs, it's totally worth it. You should probably be paying a lot more than you are. But I also know his comp isn't $150,000 a year. That I know for sure. It's like, if you do the all-in cost, it's a lot more than that. But Including like security for his house. Yeah. and, and that, I mean, he, he owns security? The, I don't think the buff dog has security. Even if this doesn't have house. security there. It's not for the house. I think there's yeah. security for the house, isn't it? He's just got that yeah. gate. I know, because I lurked once. Yeah, see, that's why I need security. Bill he probably does. <laughs> did, yeah. did he tase you? You got tased. <laughs> oh, man. I come in peace to the buff dog. He could sense it on me. Of course. That's it's like funny. the force, the value investing force. I, I do think that, that the the big, you know, horrible you know, fact is that a lot of guys get paid to do absolutely nothing. And that that to me is is really, you know, I, I don't love it. I, I don't love it when uh, shareholders do poorly and management teams do well. I mean that that is that is absolutely I, I want people to get paid. I want people to get paid a lot when they do well. It really rubs people the wrong way when somebody gets paid and everybody else loses money. It's really a bad outcome. It, it just, it just feels, it, it, it's a bad look. Be the way I would say it. Why does Buffett take any salary at all? Like at 150, that's just kind of like, it's a waste of his time, isn't it? He'd be, he'd be better off like just doing the Steve Jobs. Just give me a buck or give me nothing. Ooh, how dare you? But, but don't you think like 150 just doesn't? He wouldn't even notice. Yeah, no. I do no. think. It's just a hassle. You know? When when was that 150 set? Probably three decades ago, something like that. It's been set there for a long yeah, time. It's probably been a while. There is this dynamic, and um, it, it would. I think it would. It would be great for investors who do who invest professionally to just go sit on a board, even as an observer or as a board member of a public company, just to kind of see the dynamics of the board. I've been on two as advisors, uh, Applebee's and Zale, and I can tell you it isn't what you expect. Like, it's just, it's just not like we, we all think it's like analysts sitting around talking about the stock and the business. And like, that isn't what it is. Like it, I think everybody, you'd be well served to actually just go see the dynamic. And what's your impression it, of what's, what happens? Well, it's so it's, so we hear Buffett talk about, or I think it's Charlie talks about it. He says, you know, independent directors who do this as their primary source of income are not independent, right? They're just not. And, 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 He's a hundred and he's a million percent correct about that. They're not. The dynamic is you fly in. It's a two day event. You fly in. We all go to dinner together. We just talk about how great things are. We, if there's a problem, we're like, well, you know, we'll work on it. Get back to us next time. And then we, we go to this nice dinner and we stay in a nice hotel. And then we meet up at a meeting. We have an all day meeting and the management team sort of come out and the CFO makes a presentation and the head of merchandise makes a presentation and the head of restaurants makes a presentation and the CEO makes a presentation. So, okay, we need to do this better. We need to do this better. Nobody really asks any tough questions. Nobody wants to piss anybody else off. My guess is on the comp for Buffett, it was, hey, we need to pay you something. You know, like you're, this is what you do for a living. You're adding a lot. We need to pay you something. That's another dynamic. It's, I, I think actually it's, it's pretty hard to make zero unless you just come in and say, I want to make zero. Like I will make zero. You're not going to pay me. I'll send it back like Gates does. It's pretty unusual. Or it's the main thing. If you've got a, a CEO that's in firm control of a company and in firm control of a board, the, these boards are packed with people who are friends of the CEO, of course, because like they don't want to go and answer tough questions. They want to go play golf and have it. So 
seeing that dynamic up close, it's really hard to understand unless you actually see it, which is why I say it's really important for you to pick that good CEO because everything else is going to fall down as a result of that. Like you have to be really comfortable with John because John's going to pick Greg. You see that uh, the curate deal with the share swap, you see, you see the bill we talked about it. So it's like, like I, I understand it has to be independent board members and they all got to go, but the truth matters, these are all John's people. And like they're, so it's whatever John says is going to happen. I mean, stars almost got sold to uh, CBS. Uh, Les wanted it. And at the, like, I don't know why this happened, but if you go through and you read the, the proxy when, when uh, Lionsgate bought it, um, John just walked into the room and was like, yeah, I don't want CBS to get it. I mean, that's, that's, that's literally what happened. He just walked in and he was like, I don't think this makes sense. I think this is going to be too tough for CBS. And it's like, dead. it doesn't matter if they were offering more money. I mean, so that, in, unless you've actually been there and seen that dynamic, it's really hard to kind of get your head around as an investor. But again, it, it, to me, what it says is like, you just got to pick the right people that you know are going to do the right thing. They're not always going to get it right, but you just got to trust that they're in full control of your capital. You just got to trust that pick people that you trust are actually going to do a good job for you and, and really want you to do well. Yeah. I, I've sat on a few boards my, as an, as an, observer rather than as a director and I, but that's my observation is that the non-executive guys just have no idea what's going on the executive guys are telling them what is happening and they sort of they they have no other choice but to accept it as being the case yeah so there's no difficult questions there and that message is sort of um you know shaped for them so that they understand they can understand what's happening and then i'm always struck that analysts who are you know observing the, the things that are going on in the business have some view about where the business is going to be in a period of time when most businesses aren't, you know, most businesses that don't have that recurring subscription type model have this, um, you know, there's a sort of chaotic element about what is going to be closed in any quarter or what's going to happen in any quarter. And somehow the outside analysts have modeled this out, you know, years into the future. And I just kind of like, I, I laugh because I think nobody inside the company even knows what's going to happen to the end of the quarter. I can tell you in, in all my cases, the answer was nobody had any idea. I mean, you know, there's some businesses are really predictable, but and, you know, nobody has any idea. It's, and it's wild because you're setting these comp targets and you're paying people based on these numbers and you really don't know. I mean, it's, it's, and it's almost a weird incentive. Like if you really, you're setting these comp targets where guys are going to make a ton of money if they hit them and you really don't know, once they think they lost it, they kitchen sink it because then they're setting up like the next year to be like, everything's going to come down and then they can get it back. And it just creates this weird it's like um, fixed price contracting. It's that kind of like game that goes on where it's like, if you do fixed price contracts, fixed price contracts, like everybody, you're supposed to overshoot and then they under deliver so they can maximize profits. And if they think it's going against them, then they just like tank the whole thing so they can lose it and not have to like have any brain damage on it. There's just these weird dynamics that you kind of pick up that shouldn't exist, but they do. They're all over the place. It's unfortunate. Which again, good people. You got to pick people who can work around it. Sorry, I told you guys, I've said this before. If you let me talk, I'll just keep going. No, it's great. Okay. We're, we're here to listen. I, I have nothing to add to this conversation. <laughs> yeah, we should get a... you on a board, Bill. You'd be a great <laughs> board member. I think I'm about that board life. I, w I would probably Not ask bad. some hard questions. Uh, it's but then it's again, torture, I'd, though. <clears throat> I'd, have to, I'd have to go to Kyle's uh, school of how to ask questions because I'd probably bail everybody out with the answer that I wanted in the middle of the question. I ramble a little long in, uh, in my questions. That's what I've noticed. Got to get better uh, about being short. You, know. you don't want to be spinning. How, how often should a board meet? Quarterly or, or monthly? Mm, monthly is too Depends much. how much they pay me, dog. I'll show up every day. <laughs> 
But if it's uh, like monthly, monthly is crazy, right? But there are plenty of boards that meet meet monthly, and you meet for hours at a time. Go through board meet minutes, have a I mean, terrible coffee, have a terrible lunch sandwich, and then meet again depends, in, a month, right? in a month. I mean, it just depends. So the the it depends on the company. The process of setting board materials together took sales like a month, you know. And I felt bad for them, but they, they what they have to compile to present to the board and then show them what they presented before and then compare it. It's like everybody was sort of on high alert for 30 days. That's a massive drain of internal resources. Like you wouldn't want one, you know, probably shouldn't have been that high in the first place. But two is like, you just don't want to do it that often. But then, you know, the great recession hits and costs are down 20%. We should be doing board calls once a week. Like that, then don't get any materials. Let's just update. Like, where are we in cash? Where are we in liquidity? Like, how are the financials going? Do we lose any key personnel? Is there anything we need to be doing? Relationship with banks, et cetera. I think it just depends, but. You know, is like, that uh, helping them with sales the diamond burn? company? Yeah, sales yeah. company. Yeah. Were I, you have, helping them with like liquidity analysis and stuff? Or was that yeah, like, I had um, yes, the answer yeah. is yes. I mean, like, I don't know how I, I, help is probably the wrong word. I mean, I was shipped to Dallas for um for months just to like just sit in an office somewhere and just be like present on the ground. Um, not at management's request, but at, at my boss at the time's request. I don't think they wanted me to be there, but they're like the nice, shout out to them. I love them. They're like the nicest people in the world. So they were perfectly happy having me there. But then uh, we did some, um, my job when I was there and actually like working, my job was- What, what year, Mike? This was 2000 and this was right right after uh, Lehman and Bear. So this would have been 2008. It was a net net, right? Yeah, it got down that low. Yeah, it got down It's low. not how they bought it, Toby. That's not how I bought it as a net net. I bought it as a net net and I wrote it up for Greenbacked. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. <laughs> Glad somebody made some money. We, my, uh, my firm ended up uh, actually clipping a profit on that, but it, it, it was like the most inefficient investment. Uh, but so, yeah. So I, when I was there, I did a, a big sensitivity of like, let's just say that it was what everybody was doing in March, but it was, it was a little more robust. So in March of 2020, everybody was doing this analysis of like, well, if COVID keeps the world down for two years, how long can Formula One survive with no fans and no races? Like, what does that look like? How long can it? So everybody's doing that analysis. I was doing that kind of on steroids for, for Zale of like, how many people are we going to have to let go? Like, what is this going to look like? If this goes on, if we're down, if we're copping down 20% for three years, what does that look like? And, and so that at a certain point, you're like, okay, we're going to lose the arm we're going to lose an ear, we, you know, we're going to lose a foot, you know, and but the patient's going to survive. And you, you just go, it goes a hundred percent to patient survival. And like, what is the absolute worst we can take? And then, it, so that was the, that, that was like, and, it, and by the way, that's like, if you really want to have an awful conversation, you get into this where people know that like it for them and their families, it's like, it's, you know, it's income or no income. And like it, you know, it's just, it was awful. I don't, I don't recommend doing it, but, uh, but, uh, yeah, that was my job was to go through and, and just try to figure out like where the absolute, like where, where did we cross the Rubicon? Like where did, did where you did do it, it for Formula One? Oh no, 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 Formula One wasn't even that hard really. Um, I, I did it like on the back of an envelope, you know, of like, these are our global sponsors. This is the money I think we can count on. If the races go away, this would count. Formula One was lucky because uh, one, being a tracker, it's so easy for Liberty to move assets around. I mean, easy, it's relatively easy. If you're a, a standalone asset-backed public company. You've got two boards to deal with. Everybody's got their own advisors. Everything takes time. When you're a tracker, it's all the same board and it's all John. And you've got 
it's 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 not even like legal structure differences. So you there when they did that reattribution, they moved Live Nation over to SiriusXM, and then they moved cash back. And like, I mean, I don't know exactly how long that took, but in, in theory, John could have done that in an hour. Like, it, it really. Dude, could you imagine? Tell you. Imagine Maffei's march. That must have been fucking brutal. I, I can't even. I really, I really can't. I mean, that guy was like between live and formula and Q sourcing from China when China was shut down. Like, I can't even imagine what that guy's. And the Braves. And the Braves. Yeah. Not knowing with the Braves. I mean, the good news is with them. Like yes, every one of his I businesses. Know, all of them. Yeah. And <laughs> by the way, in Sirius XM, people aren't commuting to work. The question would be like, who's going to turn off their subscription yeah. service if they're not commuting to work anymore? And the answer we found that's such a. I like that reattribution because then you get like the you get the cash flow from Sirius, but then you get the growth component of live potentially. Yes. Uh, and people it makes sense like it. to sell as a music thing. People did not like it. The LSX some guys didn't like it when it was announced. But my, my thought was like it probably made more sense for live to be over there anyway. Like it just in my mind, those two things just made a lot more sense than Formula One with Live. And I, I personally thought like I didn't think live is such a nice business. I, it's really pricey like crazy nosebleed price but it's really not I mean, you basically have a monopoly on tickets and then as a as a promoter like having the ticket business gives you so much leverage it's it's a it's a really it's a really good symbiotic business relationship they have inside of live and so i really liked it but yeah so when you're when you're like john and greg like they got so burned by leverage going into um the financial crisis those guys are very sharp about how they structure their debt. They're very sharp about how much liquidity they have. It would, Formula One, I just, I basically went to there. It was like, I've got their balance sheet and if you go look at it and you're like, okay, most of their costs are variable because it's team payments. So then you're just like, okay, so let's say we, we keep a couple of teams afloat. That was really the only wild card with, with Formula One was did we have to keep like Haas alive or Williams or was that going to be, and, and that was sort of an unknown of how much money if, if we had to make loans to those guys, what we were going to need. But I also was like, look, They've got a lot of cash. They generate cash in Siri. They can reattribute stuff around if they need to. And sure enough, that's what ended up happening. That was the. I don't work a lot, guys. So that's like. I only. Uh, I only smirked when you talked about John getting uh, burned on leverage because somewhere on vacation, Jake's head just exploded, and he's saying, "Well, why do they still have all this leverage then?" <laughs> it's good that man. I, so it's funny because you talked to. So you Shout out to, to Jake. Now. What's up, man? Jake, sorry that he's on a plane. Sorry you yeah. missed this one, Jake. It, it, uh, by the way, guys, it turns out like. Jake's been holding out on me. It turns out he's tight with like one of the, there's like five people in North America who value lumber mills for a living. And Jake's like tight with one of them. And he just made that connection last week. I'm like, how have you been holding out on me this whole time? Like, the guy's like, Tim, he's the nicest guy. Shout out to Tim if you're watching. He's the nicest guy in the world. He's like, come to our lumber mills with me. I'm like, yes, sir. Anytime you want to do that, I'll do that with you. 100% I will do that with you. But yeah, the, the um, if you look, they talk to John. So when, when they were doing the uh, Expedia, Lexia, uh, so they had the Liberty Expedia and Expedia and Diller was going to buy it. It was like the, the, the worst kept secret that Diller was going to buy it. And the question is about price. And so I had uh, dinner with John and I was like, where, you know, what, what do you, what's the negotiation between you and Barry? And like you say, like Barry's my best friend. And so does that mean you guys are going to do like a friend deal or does that mean we're like, is it, is it, you know, boards involved? And he was like, look, it's really simple. And this, this is like classic John stuff. He's like, it's very simple. I just wanted to give me the shares. The problem is that you had a business in there and what's that worth? And then you had some debt, some exchangeable debt at Lexi. And so like, what's that worth? And I was like, yeah, I mean, that makes sense, but you've got some debt at Lexi. And he goes, he goes, Mike, that debt is an asset. And I was like, okay. All right. He's like, that is not a liability. He's like, if you look at the price, we did that exchangeable, like 170 a share stocks, like 120 a share. He's like, that is an asset that I borrowed money that cheaply. And I was like, 
okay, thanks, John. He's, I, I'm being a little more adamant and a little more animated. He's not quite so animated. He's like, that's an asset. Like, that's how John structures that now. He structures it to think of it like an asset. So versus the short-term stuff that like got T in trouble years ago. And like, that's the stuff that he just, just stays away from that stuff. And it was not wrong. Like, so you have that happen in Formula One. It's like, it's fine. You know, it's, it's if cash goes to zero, cash flow goes to zero, it's like you can survive. Like that's, that's how he built his debt structure. That was the bigger question for me. How do the, like, aren't you relying on the, the, uh, the Formula One teams having enough money to get themselves through, which, you know, for the ones like, for Mercedes Benz, that they they've got no issues at all. It's the ones that, as you point out, Haas and Williams that are yeah, and it's on, time the, on the edge anyway. Yeah, yeah. no, time. you're not wrong. I mean, that, that the risk was that ten teams went to five, and five teams fielding ten drivers and ten vehicles is not an exciting thing to watch. I mean, that was the bigger. The risk wasn't that the brand goes away. The risk was that the teams go away, and so that that one was sort of like a we just cross our fingers and we just hope that this you know, that this can come back quickly, and that you know. The teams like Haas, I, I'm going to know what Haas spends a year. Somebody's going to know this. I think it's like 15 million bucks. It, it's it's very, very low. Maybe it's 20. I mean, they don't spend, like Mercedes spends like 400 million. Or that, that's gross or that's their loss? That's that's their gross. That's what no, they're I think that's, I think that's total gross. spending. Yeah, no, oh, I think that's the okay. gross. It may, it may be as high as 40 million. I mean, it, but I, I don't I don't think- You can build a car and fly it around the world with a team for $15 million a year. No it's way, not, surely not. It's, maybe it's 20. I mean, it's it's not a lot. I mean, they, they outsource a lot of that to Ferrari. Somebody's going to be on YouTube and be like, you're more <laughs> screaming, on $80 screaming. million a year. No, it's disclosed. I mean, they, they, there's estimates about what every team spends, but it, it's really not that much. And by the way, the number I'm quoting might be, and you might be right. It might be. I a think Haas is more, man. It's looking like 110 million. Is that what you just Google Googled it? Machine. Okay. Yeah. Right. Maybe, maybe I'm thinking of the net number post the, uh, it's, I didn't think it was a lot, but I, maybe I was thinking of the net number post their, uh, their different sponsorships. Number. But the point is, if you had to do it, you had to float Haas for a year, how much do you have to give them to do that? Because like, obviously they're not flying their car around every year if we're not having right. any races. You know, so right. the question is, how much are you going to have to float? I didn't think it was that big of a number, but it, but you know, it it was a little bit of a. I, I must confess, when uh, shout out to Dan McMurtry, when Dan McMurtry put uh, started tweeting about South Korea shutting down last year, uh, my wife and I went on a walk, and I was like, there are some stocks if the U.S. shuts down that we just can't own, and the top of that list was Formula One, so we got kind of lucky. We uh, we pitched most of it, and then ended up just sort of buying it back. So I wasn't. Uh, and playing defense but yeah that was you did have to you know sort of calm your stomach down a little bit and buy that before we knew that you know covid was was gonna was wasn't going to be as bad as we were thinking that it might have been so yeah it looks like last year or 2019 Haas is at 173 million but mercedes is almost a half half billion that's a lot of money Everything I say, you're going to be my fact checker. I want Bill to just go in. And Dude, like that's why that's why Google you need it. multiple personalities on a radio show. This is the risk. I, I haven't done any real work on anything since 2018, and that's the risk. Good like for my you. Memory, my memory on this stuff can be totally, can be totally. Except wrong. for lumber. I do a lot of work on lumber. I had a lot of conversations on lumber. That is true. It's nice too because you have these forums. You like last time. Oh, this is one correction I got to make. So I, I I just did this work myself. So I was, I was looking at uh, marginal costs of, of lumber production in Scandinavia and shipping it over, which was my guess to where the lumber break-evens would be in North America if I was right on housing starts. And so I was looking at container rates. So if, if, if you and I want to ship uh, lumber from the United States to China, which actually is a thing, uh, that like hardwoods or softwoods, we'd use a container, which takes 5,000 uh, four feet. It turns out this guy, Tim, who's Jake's friend, is like in Scandinavia, 
they have these conveying and these like bulk shipping things that can get that cost way, way down from like $800 per thousand board foot. He was saying like $50 per thousand board foot. Now you have to get these bulk cargo carriers and the rates on those are like off the charts. So 50 might be a hundred now or 150, but it's not 500. It's not 800. So it's quite a bit lower. So it's really nice. This is people will like hear it and then they'll like email you and be like, yeah, this, this is one piece of the puzzle that you don't have. And it's like, you know, helps you kind of form formulate your thinking. So if you're tracking break-evens on Scandinavian lumber, Scandinavian softwoods, uh, the number is not 800, <laughs> 50 to hundred. That's the number you should do you guys have, uh, we, we, we're sort of, we're coming close on time here, but do you guys have any views on Harley Davidson? I've got a question here about that on the hog. I don't. Somebody pitched me on it. They were dead right on it. Uh, it sounds like the business rationalized a lot of inventory coming out the other end of COVID. I, just, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. There's this, there's this whole dynamic, Bill. I, I don't know what, what you're seeing in Chicago or in Florida, but there's this whole interesting dynamic. So like country clubs in, in the Northeast. So uh, I played with a friend um, in uh, Garden City. His club is now fully booked. Um, I, one of my friends in Old Greenwich, his club is now fully booked. You can't get in. Um, that hasn't been the case in 20 years. And I sort of wonder, like there's been, they've been giving spots away uh, and now you can't get one. I sort of wonder this, move out to the suburbs that causes people to go to golf clubs. If that's not going to end up being a boon for Harley, people might have to get a little bit older because I think the demographic actually is a little bit older for Harleys, but I kind of wonder if that's not, if that old path of like, you got to, you know, get out, get out to the burbs, put your kids in a country club swimming pool and then buy yourself a Harley Davidson when, you know, when you turn 50 is like the new thing. I, I don't know, but it'll be interesting to see that that dynamic is definitely shifting back to the suburbs. I think it has been a short, I think it's been like a, a pretty long-term terminal short. I don't, I don't know exactly where it is now, but it's been more short than long. And I think that that's the problem of it has been that the, the riders tend to be older and that they've just been, there are no younger people coming through riding. I don't know what younger people ride instead, gold wings or something like that. What, what are those things called? No, you know who captured a lot of share was Indian. Oh, yeah. And Polaris owns them. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah, I see the the bikes I see around in the Northeast are all like Kawasaki's and they're all the, the crotch rockets. They're not the Harleys. That's what they're called, right? I or, see a lot of Harleys. In I think Florida. so. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, there's Florida? also a lot of yeah. old people there. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's cut. That's time, fellas. Uh, I think next week we're going to have a foursome. I think we'll have Ew. JT, Bill, and Mike. Everybody's back next week for the uh, June 15 hit off. If you want me to drop off, just put it in the comments. I'm happy to. Uh... <laughs> I'll ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Thanks, this is fun, guys. Enjoy. Thanks again, Mike. Thanks, thanks, Bill. Thanks, everybody. This is this has been fun. Uh, see you next week. Move with the rhythm. Shake it up. Stop when the clock hits thirteen.